without further ado, we're going to go now and, and have a time where we're going to be listening to God's word. I'm going to pray for David. David's a part of our church uh, leadership uh, here. So let's just pray that God would, amidst all the mess that we maybe had a few times going on this morning, let's just quieten our minds and focus on that which is going to be planted through David by God into our hopefully receptive hearts. Father God, we want to say thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to praise you. Amidst all the bits and pieces that may well sometimes go wrong, uh, we give all of those things to you and just help us to retain those things that you are wanting us to enter into. Bless David as he comes to speak to us and may we be conscious of you speaking to us through him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. David. Thank you, Roger, and thank you to the worship group for leading us through so far. And thank you to all of you for joining us this morning in our live broadcast. It's great to have you with us. Those of you who have been joining us over the last few weeks will know that we have been looking at Mark's Gospel. And as we do so, we've been trying to track and trace the life of Jesus. And this morning, community kids, you know what we're going to be talking about because Laura's already talked about it. We're going to be looking at a story Jesus told about sowing seeds. And as we do so, we're going to be asking a question. And it's a very good question that I'm sure we all ask from time to time. What's going on beneath the surface? Maybe you've asked that question when you've had an unusual or significant conversation with a work colleague, with a friend or a family member. Maybe you've had a conversation with a child and they've said something that's very unchildlike and you think to yourself, where did that come from? What's going on beneath the surface? Next week, we've got Tabitha coming to speak to us. Tabitha is a GP, and I'm sure very often she will sit in her surgery and listen to what her patients are telling her. And all the time, she'll be thinking, I know what you're saying to me, but what's really going on beneath the surface? Sometimes, friends of ours will ask that question of us. Very occasionally, someone might be brave enough or courageous enough to actually ask us the question, look, what's going on beneath the surface? But usually, people aren't that brave, and all they can do is listen to what we tell them and guess what's going on beneath the surface. Why is that? Well, because most of us are very good at presenting the world with a version of us that we want people to see. We want people to think of us in a particular way, so we act and we speak in a way that portrays that likeness. Really, there's only ever two people who know what's actually going on beneath the surface in our lives. That's God and us. And that's if we are prepared to ask the question of ourselves. The Bible encourages us to take a deep and honest look within our lives, even if sometimes that's a painful thing to do. But today, Jesus in our reading tells us a story all about looking at what's going on beneath the surface. Eve, who is uh, currently at home recovering from an operation, is going to bring us our reading this morning. The parable of the sower, from Mark chapter 4, verses 1 to 20. 
Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered round him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake, while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. He taught them many things by parables, and in his teaching said, Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came up and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came out, the plants were scorched and they withered because they did not have any root. Other seed fell amongst thorns, which grew up and choked the plant so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew and produced a crop multiplying 60, 30 or even a 100 times. Then Jesus said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed grown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like the seeds sown amongst the thorns, hear the word. But the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it untruthful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it and produce a crop. Thirty, sixty or even a hundred times what was sown. reading this morning it's great to see you looking so well after your operation. Mark's gospel is all about action where other gospel accounts record much of what Jesus said Mark records an action-packed account of what Jesus did. Mark doesn't linger uh, but he moves quickly from one story to the next. One of Mark's favourite words to use in his gospel is the word that comes to us in English as straight away or immediately. This is no lengthy discourse like the book of Luke or a book full of juxtaposition like John, but a whistle-stop tour of Jesus' life and ministry. But you know, throughout the short book of Mark, there is a question that runs like a scarlet thread, and it's this. Having seen what Jesus did, what is it that you now believe about him? Mark's gospel might be the shortest gospel, but it asks a big question about faith. What, or rather who, are you going to have faith in? And as we think about that question, and as we look at this story and ask ourselves, 
what is going on beneath the surface in our own lives, I want us to think about four important words that appear in this gospel, in this, uh, in this passage, rather. And the first word is the word crowd. The crowd that gathered around him was so large, he had to get into a boat and sail out into the lake in order to be able to talk to them. If you read the first three chapters of the book of Mark, you'll find that most of the events revolve around three distinct groups of people. There was, on the one hand, the disciples. Jesus called the disciples just a few verses into chapter one. They believed Jesus. They gave up everything they had and followed Jesus. And then you've got this group of people that we kind of call the Pharisees or the religious leaders of the day or the teachers of the law or perhaps the Sadducees. They came in various flavors, but whatever their precise description, they show us an interesting insight into the spiritual state of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. These were people who were most familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They knew the law, the teaching of Moses, the prophets, the Psalms, the history, inside out. The whole of the Old Testament, which they used as a pretext for their lives and for their constant justification for putting everyone down, making everyone obey onerous rules and regulations, the whole of those scriptures had one single message, and that was this. God is sending you a Messiah. Be ready, be prepared for him. In other words, these people were the people who, more than anybody else, should have been watching out for the signs of the long-awaited Messiah. They should have been watching Jesus with special interest. They should have been asking themselves deep and searching questions as they listened to what he said. And yet we read that almost every interaction that Jesus had with these uh, teachers of the law, the religious leaders of the day, was one of animosity. And so we have these two diametrically opposed groups, the disciples who had given up everything to follow Jesus. And on the the other hand, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, who would stop at nothing to bring Jesus down. And then in between these two groups, we have this enormous group of people called the crowd. The crowd, it seems, followed Jesus around wherever he went, and they listened to what he had to say. We can't be certain exactly what they thought of Jesus. They weren't really signed up to anything he said in a particular way, otherwise they would have been disciples. But they also weren't probably against what Jesus was doing and saying. Most likely, Jesus put on a good show. They wanted to see for themselves what these miracles were all about. You know, crowds like that have existed through the ages. Always up for a bit of entertainment, something a bit different to lighten a dull day, however macabre or bizarre. But you know, there are other sorts of crowds as well. People who are looking for something to nail their colours to perhaps in a non-committal sort of sense. Look, people looking for someone or something that can offer a modicum of hope in a life full of worry without actually costing them too much in terms of emotional or lifetime commitment. 
Maybe there were people there who had heard half a story about one of these miracles that Jesus did. And, you know, my neighbor said, the bloke had been a cripple all his life and he just got up and walked away. Apparently the bloke was a leper and all of a sudden his skin was clean. You know, they say he'd been blind all his life and that day he could just see normally. You know, I, I don't know, I'm pretty sure it's all a con, but I just wonder, if, if I could just get to the front of the crowd, then I would know for certain. You probably know the sort of thing I mean. 21st century crowds, again, are no different. We don't literally follow people around. That sort of thing tends to get us arrested. But we do follow people on social media, don't we? You know, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Instagram or TikTok if you're under 15. And you look at things and you think, I know that's a load of rubbish, but I'm just going to have a little look and see what it's all about. So the crowd followed Jesus around from place to place to place. And they watched and they enjoyed the spectacle of Jesus performing apparently impossible miracles, of Jesus saying things to the Pharisees that they probably wish they had the courage to say to them themselves. And they enjoyed watching this strange carpenter's son from the north. And they wondered and they heard what he said. Which leads us on to our second word. And that's listen. The very first thing that Jesus says to them is, listen. The parable of the sower is the first or one of the first parables that Mark records to a crowd at large. It's true Jesus had told a parable in one of the previous uh, chapters, but that was a, a specific parable to a specific group of people in response to a specific criticism. This time I think Jesus looks out at this crowd of people who have been following him round and he wants to challenge them at large. And so he tells a story. Now, like all the parables, the theme of the story was a familiar one. A farmer goes out to sow seed in a field, the sort of thing that would have happened every springtime. What perhaps is not quite so obvious is the implied meaning. Jesus didn't have a Laura going round with him to explain it. And so the key to the crowd understanding the parable is in the first word that Jesus says, listen, listen to me. What else were they going to do? Hadn't they been listening all along? Hadn't they been listening for weeks as they followed him round? Well, maybe they had. Maybe they hadn't, though. I think Jesus wants to distinguish between the passive act of hearing and, if you like, the active act of listening. You know, it seems to me the difference between hearing and listening is that things we hear are things we probably don't want to hear. You know, um, all I could hear was that dreadful music. All I could hear was the baby crying. Or all I could hear was the noisy engine. We listen to things we want to listen to. I listened to that beautiful music. I listened to the play on the radio. I listened to the speech that he gave. It was amazing. Any of you who have worked with children or had anything to do with children will at one time or another have said something like, are you listening to me? Often children can hear what you say, but they don't listen. They have no way of engaging with what you're saying to them. 
And I think the same was true of the crowd that Jesus was talking to. They could hear the words that Jesus was saying, but were they listening to them in order to engage with them and understand them? You know, we talk about a can-do attitude sometimes, don't we? Sometimes I think there needs to be not so much of a can-do attitude as a want-to attitude when we listen to what Jesus says to us through his word. You know, I don't understand this, but I want to understand it. I think that's what Jesus was encouraging in the crowd. Following particular teachers or religious personalities was a popular pastime in Jesus' time, just as it was, uh, just as it is nowadays. Jesus wants to tell the crowd it's not just enough to follow him round, perhaps to stand at the edge of the crowd, to watch what he's doing, to hear what he says. Jesus says, look, if you want to listen, if you want to understand what I'm doing here, if you want to understand what my message is, if you want to understand what these miracles are all about, if you want to understand what these arguments I have with the Pharisees and the teachers of law is all about, don't just hear me, but listen. Listen to understand. I guess it's a bit like reading books, isn't it? You know, over this lockdown period when life's been a bit hard, I've enjoyed reading some easy books, books I can pick up, I read, they entertain me for a few hours, and I put them down and forget all about them. But there are some books we read that can't be just casually read and put down. They demand to be studied, reread, analysed and understood. That doesn't mean to say we need to be clever or academic or bookish to understand what Jesus says, but we do need to want to understand what Jesus is saying, to recognise that it's important and that we need to engage with it. We cannot simply hear what Jesus says for a few minutes, wander off, forget all about it, be distracted by something else and expect it to make a difference in our lives. We're going to sing a couple of songs now. The first song is a song that was being sung as we opened the surface. It's, uh, as Roger alluded to, it's a new song to us. It's a beautiful song. But listen to the words, because the words come to us in the form of a prayer. Let my heart be good soil, open to the seed of your word. And maybe you've been watching these online broadcasts and you don't quite know what this is all about and and you can't quite get to grips with this God thing and what Jesus is all about. Why not use this as an opportunity to pray through the words of this song? They'll be appearing at the bottom of your screen. Pray them as a sincere prayer to God that he would help you to understand, to engage with and to listen to what he has to say to you. Thank you, Charlene and the worship group, for leading us through those songs. I hope you found them helpful as we think about this idea of seeds being planted and growing. Our third word that we're going to think about this morning is the word given. In uh, in verse 11 of chapter 4, Jesus says to the disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. 
You know, it occurred to me as I was reading through this that if Mark had stopped recording this story in verse 8 with the end of the parable, this would have been a very simple message indeed. But the disciples asked Jesus a very good question. Why do you speak in parables? If this is so important, if it's so important that the crowd listen and understand what you're saying, why not just tell them what you mean in a plain and simple way? I'm reminded of Oscar Wilde's great Aunt Augusta from The Importance of Being Earnest. A man should say what he means and mean what he says. But I think the disciples have a point. You see, you could read this parable and ask some questions of it. Why did the farmer allow the seed to fall on the poor soil and the path? Why didn't the farmer use better seed? Why didn't the farmer pull up the weeds? Why didn't the farmer better prepare the soil? Why didn't the farmer organise his field so the path was in a more convenient place? But I guess to ask these questions is probably to miss the point of the parable. There is just one variable here, the condition of the soil. If Jesus is a farmer and the seed is the gospel, there appears to be only one thing that can change, which is the soil, and that's us. But the disciples want to know why this is the case. If God is the farmer, why doesn't he make more, take more care of the sowing process? Why doesn't he make sure the soil is all in good condition? Does the farmer care about the seed that falls into poor soil? No farmer wants to waste seed, so why does he scatter it so carelessly? To come back to the heart of the matter, why doesn't Jesus just tell the crowd the plain and simple truth instead of them telling us instead of telling them a story which they may or may not understand? Well, in order to answer the disciples' questions and explain to them his reasons, Jesus goes back to the Old Testament and Jesus quotes from one of the great commissioning passages that we find in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you want to know more about that, you can read that in your own time. But in short, in Isaiah chapter 6, we find the prophet Isaiah, he's in a bad place. He has previously lost his spiritual leader, his mentor, if you like, the great king of Israel, King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a good and godly king that Isaiah looked up to and respected, but he had died. And God shows Isaiah a great vision of himself. And it's a a vision that's remarkable and has been a source of awe and wonder ever since. But along with the majesty and the splendor of Isaiah's vision of God, God has two purposes in mind. And firstly, we read God's purpose was to cleanse Isaiah of his unclean lips. We don't quite know exactly what that means, but there was something about what Isaiah said and the way he said it that stood in the way of God's second purpose for Isaiah. And that was to commission Isaiah to go out and to speak to the nation. And Isaiah, having seen this amazing vision of God and having his unclean lips cleansed, whatever that meant, Isaiah is all keyed up and prepared and ready to go. And he says, God, I will go and I will speak to the nation. What do you want me to say? 
And God has something rather surprising and unsettling for Isaiah to say. Go tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull or close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Or as Jesus quoted it, turn and be forgiven. Isaiah, unsurprisingly, thinks that stinks as a message to take to the people. And so we ask God, how long have I got to say this for God? Well, God says, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What a depressing message to be told to go and preach to the nation. And yet, this is the example that Jesus gives of, to the disciples of why he spoke to the people in parables. Isaiah is to go out and to preach to the people, but as he does so, we read they will become deaf and blind to all that he says and does. But God allows that to happen. Otherwise, we read they might hear and see and understand and turn and be healed, which seems incredibly harsh to us. Except for one thing, God has made it clear throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament that he wants to raise up for himself a people who will follow him. In the Old Testament, God uses the picture of a nation that will be his. In the New Testament, he uses a picture of a family, and we as Dorchester Community Church and the Worldwide Church are part of that family. But God doesn't want his family to be a group of brainwashed, mindless automatons. But God wants people who have sought out the truth. People who have listened and engaged and understood with what God is saying. People who have wrestled with their own mistakes, with their own failings. People who have come to believe that the only one who holds the answer to the problems in their lives is God. God's message to Isaiah, or the message that Isaiah is to take to the nation, also turns to the idea of growing plants. This time it's not a farmer going out to sow seeds in a field, but the idea of a tree stump regrowing. And you know, it comes to me as a very powerful image. that When we take, as it were, a spiritual chainsaw to the trunk, to the branches of our own self-importance, worldly distractions, our faith in anything that isn't God, we find from the base of the tree stump, green shoots of life start to grow. And I think when we look back at the parable of the sower, we see that there's not a sort of fatalism about what sort of soil we are. You know, some people say, I'm so pleased for you because you've got faith. I'm so pleased for you because you're in the well-prepared, nicely manured soil, which is going to grow plants well. I'm just part of the path. But good for you for being part of the nice soil. No, there is a matter of choice. Like the people in Isaiah's time, we can become deaf and blind and hardened to what God is saying to us. 
But there is an alternative, and that is to listen, to see, to search, to try to understand. You know, elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus says, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Ask and it will be given. Given. That word that Jesus gave to his disciples. When we listen and see and search and try to understand, when we ask, we find we are given from God two messages, I believe. The first is a message of love and forgiveness and acceptance. Something we cannot earn, but when we truly seek, we are given. And secondly, God speaks to us a message of purpose, which leads us on to our fourth and final word, produce or produce. One's a noun, one's a verb. We pronounce them slightly differently for some reason, but produce. Just as the stumps of Isaiah's vision are cut down to grow again, so the seed of truth about God is planted to grow, but not just to grow. Listen to the language in the story as uh, Mark records it. Still other seed fell on the good soil. It came up. It grew. It produced. There was a crop. It multiplied 30, 60, 100 times. There's almost a breathless progression in the way that Mark records the story. God's plan for those few in Israel who did listen to Isaiah, who understood and repented, wasn't that they would do so in order to simply have a nice, warm, fluffy feeling, to have a sense of self-righteousness as they looked down on everybody else around them who hadn't believed and understood and repented. It was in order that they would become a seed in the land of Israel. In other words, to fulfill God's purpose, yes, in their lives, but in the life of his people people at large. Paul puts it like this when he writes to the church in Ephesus, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to feel wonderful about ourselves. No, Paul says to do good works. Any old good works? The good works which make us look very virtuous? The good works that happen to appeal to our interests, to our personalities? No, Paul says the good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. God doesn't plant the gospel in our hearts so we can feel good about ourselves and look holy and spiritual. He does it because he has planned a work for us to do according to his perfect and preordained plan. Maybe, as I have felt sometimes over the last few weeks and months, you think it's pretty much impossible to do anything sensible for God right now. Church services aren't allowed to happen. The building is all but shut up. We're not allowed to visit our friends and our family. Social lives have been completely curtailed. And yet, you know, none of this is a surprise to God. God's plans for us aren't derailed by this current situation we find ourselves in, be that the COVID crisis or perhaps some other aspect of your life which you feel stands in the way of you serving God. God put his plans into place for our individual lives in spite of the human problems that we feel stand in the way. 
I watched recently a documentary about the BBC correspondent uh, Frank Gardner. You may remember that Frank Gardner, who is a defence and security correspondent, several years ago was shot uh, in, uh, in front of the camera while he was on air several times in the lower abdomen. He was very fortunate to survive, but as you can imagine, that was a life-changing event for him. He can't walk anymore, he can't perform normal bodily functions and do many other things. And yet he's still on our televisions and radios on a regular basis. And he said the key to him getting to grips with his new lifestyle was not to think about the things he used to be able to do and the things he wanted still to be able to do, but instead to focus on the things he could do. Sage advice for lockdown two, I think. Just as we close, I want us just to think very briefly about another great commissioning story in the Bible. And this we find in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible. And that's the commissioning of Moses. Moses, at the ripe old age of 80, after 40 years of tending his father-in-law's flock in the wilderness, is met by God. And God says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go into the palace of the Pharaoh of Egypt and talk to him. And Moses comes up with some very good reasons why he shouldn't do that. Not least of all the fact that, as far as Moses was concerned, he was a nervous and incoherent speaker. And also the fact that he was actually still wanted for murder in Egypt. God doesn't accept what Moses says, and he asks Moses a question. Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses looks down, and he sees in his hand the shepherd's staff, the thing that he'd used all day, every day, as he rounded up the flocks of sheep. Surely that was going to be no use, as he went and talked to the pharaoh in the palace. But as far as God was concerned, that was a starting point. We may not think we're up to much. We might think that we're too poor to serve God, too not clever enough, perhaps too rich, maybe not able to speak in public. We're no good at working with children and young people. We're not people orientated to do anything for God. Maybe we feel that achieving anything during this current COVID crisis is just impossible and we'll we'll just have to put off doing anything for God right now. Maybe we need to take Frank Gardner's advice and not think about the things we used to be able to do or the things we want to be able to do, but the things we can do. When, like Isaiah, we are ready and able and eager to serve God, But we don't know where to start. God still asks us the question that he asked Moses. What's in your hand? What's in your hand? Because together, that's where we'll start. And together, we'll see what we can achieve. God bless you.